Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's not just the equity market then that's facing a rough 2018 for the first time since the global financial crisis. High yield and investment grade in both dollars and euros are heading for an annual loss. So what is going on in credit and how concerned should you be? George Borey joining us now, Wells Fargo Securities Head of Credit Strategy. Good morning to you, George. Morning, Jonathan. Some of our listeners might not have the same visibility they have on, say, the S&P 500 and the Dow than they do in credit. Just walk me through what has been going on and talk to me about the price of the story now. Sure, I think there are two really big issues and two big factors that are happening in credit. First and foremost, it, it all starts with the Fed. The Fed obviously has been raising rates over the course of this year, over the last, say, two plus years. And it's the, the march back towards cash it's well underway. And, you know, you can look at it from a return perspective. You can look at it as a fund flow perspective. You know, investors are moving towards the front end of the curve. They've been doing that all year. But the total returns, the capital protected money is doing just fine. If you have a maturity profile of three years or less, it doesn't matter if you held treasuries, if you held corporates, if you held high yield, you are generating positive total returns. That's a good thing. The other issue is simply who's buying debt. Who's investing in debt today? And this is the difference between a price investor and a yield investor. The price investor, the, fo- the, fo- the folks who kind of worry when prices go down, they're moving out of the market. And those folks have been buying a lot of debt over the last decade. Those investors are finally seeing yields rise, prices drop, and they're moving away. But the institutional investor, these yeah. are pension funds, insurance companies, endowments, these are the folks that really care about yields, and yields actually look very compelling right now. So, George, let's talk about that. For an institutional investor, what's important right now to look at things in terms of relative value or absolute value? I think you can look at absolute value today. Really? Walk me yes. through that, George. I mean, if you look at, say, high yield as an asset class has an all-in yield of about 7.25%. Inflation's at 2%. A 4.25% real yield is very compelling to a long-term institutional investor. You don't have to worry about relative value. In the world of investment grade, it's less, less compelling. But even there, you're talking about roughly 4.3, 4.4% yields. Those yields are, are, are compelling. They're not wildly cheap, yeah. but they do look pretty good you know, over a medium-term perspective. George, a lot of people looking at what is happening in investment grade and spotting some very specific ugly stories. Yes. General Electric, one a lot of people are talking about. And I hear that word that I heard surrounding the emerging market asset class yes. earlier this year, idiosyncratic. Right. Idiosyncratic. Then all of a sudden it's not, it's systemic. (laughs) You asked the question in your recent research, and it's a great note, and I want to ask it to you now. When does an upsurge of idiosyncratic risk become systemic? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely the right question. In in, in our opinion, an idiosyncratic problem, this is when a, a, a list of individual companies are having challenges. When that becomes systemic is when otherwise healthy companies cannot access the capital they need. It doesn't mean that a healthy company needs to pay a little bit more, which is what we're seeing right now. It's when they can't borrow at all. And I, in our opinion, we're still a far cry from, from that, that sort of yeah. scenario. 
Good morning. John, what are you doing? Real yield? Well, I just all those do questions. Of, thought we'd do a little all bit of real yield. <laughs> it's what time is it? John, John, John Tucker, where's the surveillance clock? It's 7.04 Come on. in the morning and you're doing convexity? Yeah, is it too early to do that? It's too early <laughs> to do convexity. Jeez. George, are we in a bear market? Let me define this. Yep. Here's the way retail works. They have an envelope. They open it. Maybe now it's by you know email or whatever. They look at the bond portfolio. It's down one month it's down two months it's down three months are we there yet we are there okay yes thank we you. are there see that john yes there's a real good question you can use <laughs> Just, you, know. you know i was doing it for wall street you want to do it for retail be my oh, guest God. carry on please george it's a bear market right price it's, down you know, yield it, up. thank you you know with you know what the way we're categorizing this year and and if you look at historical total returns for fixed income you know every seven to eight years you get a really bad down market that be, could because defaults are going up or because yields are rising this year it's all about yields yields are up spreads are wider total returns for the asset class they look pretty bad you know investment grade down 3.8 percent that's not typical a retail investor is not in it for a minus four percent return However, yields are materially higher. The prospect for a positive return next year are much higher today than they were at the end of last year. And I think that's the, that's the silver lining. Let's talk about leverage loans. Tom's going to love this. No, no. <laughs> Can we're going deep. 2018, actually, is a part of fixed income that held up really, really well. There's yeah. two big reasons for that. Two big reasons many institutional investors would be driven towards leverage loans. Right. Appetite for credit risk appetite for floating rate. Right. What's been interesting in the last couple of months is LIBOR has remained elevated. So you should still have that appetite for floating rate, yeah. yet leverage loans has started to crack just a little bit. And I'm wondering what you think about what is happening, George, because most people would ask if there's been a flood of money anywhere in fixed income this year, yeah. it has been to that space. Yeah, The growth in, in leverage loans has been truly impressive uh, over the last several years. I think it's a combination of sort of pretty healthy companies putting up good numbers and wanting to borrow with a floating rate structure, as you point out, investors being drawn to that floating rate structure at a senior point in the capital structure. All of that is is all well and good. The underwriting standards have clearly eroded over the last couple of years. All types of companies can get money. They can get it pretty easily. You know, our, our recommendation is to go from floating maybe back into fixed, to go from, say, your leverage loan into the world of high yield, because there are some cracks that are starting to emerge. It doesn't look as if we're at the sort of imminent end of the credit cycle, but when you've had very, very loose lending standards for a long yeah. period of time, you know, that's basically where the problems start to emerge. What did your world say about tech? Bonds usually signal equity trauma. Did Is there so little tech debt that you really can't yeah. use bonds as a vehicle for tech like you could with Generous Electric? <laughs> Well, I think the you know the bond world is divided. You know the bond world. I think whether it's investment grade, high yield, or even in leverage loans, it tends to be kind of the cash cow of the corporate world. Once you're sort of in the world of bonds, you know you're a very cash generative company that tends to be leaning on the fixed income yeah. side. Tech specifically is so cash generative, it tends to divide into old world tech, right? Say an IBM, new world tech. 
say like uh, Microsoft. Yeah. Um, the, the new world tech is just doing just fine. Old world tech is still yeah. in a transformational stage. I don't think that's the leading edge in, in our world. One quick uh, question. Our Michael McGlone publishes a brilliant note out of Bloomberg Intelligence this morning on potential write downs at General Electric as they spin off Baker Hughes mm -hmm. in a more fast manner. You don't talk about individual debt, but is General Electric is a junk opportunity? Or is it something to avoid? I'm really not. I really can't go you into that in too much okay. detail. Um, you know, the, it, okay. it, it's 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 outside of well, my remit. I'm glad you're here, and the studio is full now. Our, our wonderful studio with limited seating here. Libby Cantrell with us, uh, with Pimco, on you know the market decline. Libby, from where you sit, I mean, I know the president. If we go to a correction status, negative 10% on S&P 500, and we're nowhere near bear market, but with a tech implosion, does a president come out and say a weak stock market is un-American and it's, you know, whoever's fault, he'll pick that day? Um, well, look, I mean, it has he, maybe does he regret now sort of hitching um, his own kind of yeah. scorecard to to the stock market? You know, maybe. Um, however, I mean, I think what he has shown that he's very good at is pivoting um, to other issues, yeah. and I think he'll he'll simply, at least you know, right now, I mean, the fundamentals of the U.S. economy are still relatively strong, maybe weakening, but but still strong. Okay. So I think he'll just pivot to. To, to that um, versus, uh, you know, playing at the stock market. Can, can he pivot to anything on policy that in a lame duck term, anybody can get done? I just don't see it. But what's your optimism of something getting done? Yeah, so I think, you know, from a, from a market's perspective, you know, the big unknown variable is whether we can see a big infrastructure package. Now, of course, that could have implications from a longer-term deficit and debt dynamics, but um, we know that the Democrats in the House, who are going to have a, a pretty healthy majority, want to show that they can govern. We know that infrastructure is a priority for Democrats, and we also know that infrastructure is a priority for the president. So I think the big question here is, can you see the Democrats pass a bill? that actually has a chance of passing a Republican-controlled Senate, and does the president support it? Because if the president gets behind a Democratic infrastructure bill, it's going to be very hard for Republicans in the Senate who are facing you know, bad, you know, difficult map in 2020 to go against the president. So I actually think that you know, our base case is you don't see a big infrastructure package, but I think the chances are actually higher than the markets seem to think, which I think have just written off this split Congress is a completely lamed up Congress and, um, and, you know, kind of paralysis and gridlock. So Libby, over the last couple of years, we've actually had a real pro-growth impetus come from Washington, D.C. When you sit around with the big committee over at PIMCO in California and talk about the good stuff that could come from Washington, D.C., what do you talk about? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great point, John. I mean, we, you know, of, of course we have seen a, a really significant fiscal tailwind, which is unusual, as you know, in the sort of the 10th year of an economic expansion to see the fiscal accelerator, so to speak, really being kind of pushed. Um, so six-tenths of a percent we're expecting in 2018 in terms of real GDP growth contribution, about four-tenths of a percent in 2019. So significant numbers when you're talking about kind of two-and-a-half, three percent 
real growth worlds. And however, we are expecting to see that fiscal stimulus that has been yeah. you know, contributed from the tax cut and the spending bill fade in late 2019. Okay. So to your question, infrastructure really is the question mark there because if we see an infrastructure expansion, then we could actually see that okay. that you know um, in terms of the, the reduction of fiscal stimulus um, I, sort of mitigate that. I want you to clarify the fiscal stimulus fades versus the actual deficit to GDP level. The deficit to GDP doesn't fade, does it? No. No, and in fact, um, so, you know, as of, as of 2020, um, it looks like the spending, spend, government spending is actually supposed to revert to 2017 levels. Who and says? the reason that matters. Wait, 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 is, wait. Who says? Well, the law says. Is this but, PIMCO accounting? <laughs> no. I, so the law, as of now, if Congress doesn't do anything, in 2020, we'll see a big drawdown in government spending. And that's because they, the Congress passed a, a government spending bill earlier this year that increased yeah. levels for both 2018 and, and 2019. That's, but that's then, like, so, wait, so, wait, wait, wait. That's like the Broncos winning the Super Bowl, right? Yeah, so, so, exactly. So, so, <laughs> okay. so, Todd, let me just, let me, let me just finish please, here. Please. So, so, if Congress doesn't do anything, then spending will revert to a much lower level. As of now, assuming that spending decreases, the CBO still has an estimated trillion-dollar deficit in 2020. Now, to, to your point, and I'm, I am equally skeptical that Congress would let that happen, especially in an election year, I, I, we don't, I don't think we'll see that drawdown in spending, meaning, and the point here is, that the 2020 deficit is likely much higher, or at least, you know, relatively significantly higher um, versus what the CBO estimates. And, and, and right now, the CBO is meaning about, about a trillion dollar deficit. So, you know, the, the point here is that we're seeing yeah. very large deficits this late in economic expansion. And at the, at, you know, at the end of the day, right. it means that the fiscal space for the government to respond to a recession is much more limited. Libby, 10 cars just drove off the road between Boulder and Denver in the discussion. <laughs> I mean, the issue, Libby, the, the issue here is people trot out and say the fiscal stimulus will end. And John Farrell, what we're left with, as Libby brilliantly laid out, is 1.x trillion of debt. When you finally let Libby finish her thought. Well, well I, just, I think a lot of people get upset by this. I agree. Okay. It was nice of you to let us speak. Why don't you jump back in after you're writing the script we've for only, your property? We've, we've, only got, we've only got two minutes left. Well, just jump in. Thanks, Tom. Um, your base case on the debt, the fiscal deficit, we've done that, Libby. Your base case for infrastructure. Can I get your base case for the G20? What does the conversation look like at PIMCO at the moment? Are you hopeful, optimistic? You know, um, I, you know, my, my personal view is that we we don't see a big grand bargain coming out of um, of the G20, and I think that's you know most folks here share that view. And now I think the the big wild card, of course, is that President Xi and President Trump are going to be meeting bilaterally. We know that you know according to President Trump, they have a great chemistry, yeah. and so you know who knows what actually happens in that room. Um, however, you know I would just point to the fact that what we're asking from China, the bar is is quite high. So this is not just a question about China buying more soybeans and, and airplanes from us. It's about them making structural reforms to their economy yeah. that, you know, honestly, looking back at their economy, they don't, they don't have any self-interest in doing so. So I think that, you know, we might, maybe we see, you know, some sort of 
happy rhetoric coming out of the out of the G20, but I think that would just be it. I think it would just be rhetoric. I don't think we see a meaningful deal, and we oh. continue to think that trade risk will will be a, a policy risk coming out of Washington for most of 2019, if not for all of it. Libby, thank you so much. Libby Cantrell with PIMCO uh, this morning. Our Mark Gilbert, writing for Bloomberg Opinion, he's taken a voluminous McKinsey report and distilled it down to the future of global Wall Street, which hinges always on asset management. James Gorman in conversation with our Eric Schatzker. Later today, a Morgan Stanley is believed in wealth management and asset management if it remains standing. Mark, congratulations on a terrific summary of the McKinsey report. What I love about this is it tells us what's happening beneath the headlines. What's your key takeaway? Well, it's not good, Tom. Um, the, the profitability last year was astonishing for global asset management. It, in the U.S., for example, the global profit pool was about $44.5 billion. That was up more than more than 20% from 2016. But under the surface, most of that profit growth came from rising stock markets. You know, the, the MSCI the world is up 20%. The asset value goes up, and so they bring in more money. So they've got more money, so they charge more. They've got extra fee income. So $12 billion of that extra profit came came just from rising stock markets. But you know what? Costs are rising. Fees are being reduced for investors. People are shifting to cheaper products. So $6.7 billion went away from the profit pool. So if you look at this year, if you look at where stocks are this year, you know, the, the benchmark U.S. indexes are just about eking out again. The MSCI world yeah. is down 4 to 5%. This year, that extra boost from rising stock markets, that's not going to be there for the asset management industry this year. What does the study say and what do you say with your industry reach about the divide of active and passive? We have heard for years, active will be there. Is it just simply active needs the mother of all bear markets to stabilize? Well, that's the claim. The claim is that active does better when, when the bear market comes. But so far this year, that's not, being, that's not really being Well, it's happened. not a bear market. Well, we're getting very close, though. You've got Apple in a bear market. You've okay, got but the it's a, stocks down. But come on, Mark. The S&P 500, I did the chart today on TV. We're barely to a correction again all of February. I get that. But not everybody owns just tech stocks, right? That's true. But if you look at European markets, they're in a much worse position. Fair. The red, the red is, has been pretty consistent mm -hmm. here. And this is even before we get to Brexit. And with growth slowing in Italy, still a problem. Right. So the market, the market outlook's not great. And for the fund right. management industry, that's going to be a problem. Right. As you know, Mark Gilbert, I'm fond of walking down the promenade in Davos, wandering towards a, 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 the piano lesson I take at the piano bar. And on the way are all the shops taken over by global asset managers. I think in about two Davoses, there'll only be one store open because they're all going to merge together. I mean, Ann Richards was at MG. She goes over to uh, Fidelity International, and there's the Aberdeen story, and you're London or over here in the United States, and Vesco merging with this, that, uh, Oppenheimer funds, and, and, and all that. Discuss what McKinsey saw in scale. It's the squeeze middle. So the top 10, the, the trillion-dollar club is doing fine. The bottom club... That's also doing well. The specialist boutiques who offer something extra, something with a bit of spin on it, something that they can charge a bit more fee. It's the middle market that's really suffering. And the flows into passive are hurting them. 
the consolidation is going to come in that squeeze middle. And as you said, we've seen deals so far. What we've seen is very few big deals. You know, Standard Life and Aberdeen was one. Yanis and Henderson was another. We haven't really seen those big blockbuster deals yet. Next year, people are going to be looking to those those firms for for more consolidation, for more mergers. And what's interesting about this is the backdrop is a backdrop of, I'm going to call managed desperation, like Abby Johnson and Fidelity, saying X number of kinds of passive funds will be free. And just in the last 24 hours i believe vanguard you know lowers the minimum amount or whatever to get into their funds i mean is there a desperation out there even among the successful giants well there's a race to zero on the fee basis because once one person offers free what are you going to do you're not going to get away with charging and it's a way of selling extra product to an investor that comes in for that zero fee you're going to broaden your product range you're going to move horizontally yeah rather than just vertically in terms of oh. in terms of your offering. I don't know about desperation, but there's definitely Darwinistic pressure going on yeah. in the industry. Here's an email. Taylor from San Francisco emails in and says, does this mean CFAs make less money? I mean, undoubtedly. What, what do you mean undoubtedly? You mean somebody that was making 150, 175 with a bonus out, 400, 500,000, whatever, US, they're going to take less money or are they going to leave? Investors are taking charge of their own money. The technology platforms are there so that you can cut out those middle agents. You can go directly to the funds that you want to choose. I think the CFAs are going to see their their incomes reduced, and and probably rightly so. They've been living high on the hog for far too long and basically creaming money out of people's pension pots to line their own Are you talking about me? Tom, as if, as if. Mark Gilbert with us as we look at the McKinsey report. What else was in this tome? I mean, I, everybody knows I adore these McKinsey reports because they've got charts. They've got, you know, XYZ feel of like the, the, the dynamics of a given industry. Well, you know, what you, was you, another insight there? You talk about the split between passive and active. Interestingly, money is still moving out of active equity funds, $653 billion out of active, $505 billion into into passive equity funds. But in <clears> fixed income, it, it's, pretty much, it's pretty much a split picture. Inflows of more than $500 billion were split evenly between passive and active strategies. So active fixed income still has a big role to play in the markets. Passive is coming. More and more ETF products are linked to fixed income. But active fixed income is really still a high margin business for most asset managers. What do you see in the city? I mean, Mark, you're totally wired into the city. And what do you see in terms of having the brain power move to other European cities? I don't see evidence of it yet. Is it there? The contingency plans aren't being triggered. We had Mark Carney appearing before the Treasury. Yeah, with Andy Haldane. Exactly that. And basically, you know, a lot of businesses, they're still waiting and seeing. They still hope that Brexit won't happen. And there's a chance that Brexit won't happen. And Mark Carney himself yeah. said that there's a there's a not there's a, a not negligible chance that that, that, that we won't get Brexit. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we could also get a a fallout without a deal. If you're on Global Wall Street, asset managers are drowning, comma not waving. Mark Gilbert, it is the must read of the day. Working off of terrific work by McKinsey, we thank Mark Gilbert out of our Queen Victoria Street studios uh, this morning. Wolfgang Munchau joins us now. Uh, thanks very much for being with us. I know you're coming to us from Oxford uh, in the United Kingdom, in Britain. What is the Hello, mood yes. right now about the process by which Britain is selecting to leave the European Union? That's a good question. The mood is very confused. 
um, people have uh, uh, everybody still is in a in a phase where they think they have their own their own their own their own separate plans. Theresa May has now negotiated a plan to leave with the EU, but there are still um, uh, still a certain degree of confusion about whether that plan can go can go through. She at the moment doesn't have a majority for it, and she is battling hard to get that majority. And uh, my hunch is that we that her chances are not that bad, contrary to what what people are expecting now, uh, because you know when it comes to the vote, which could be in mid December um, or, or a little earlier than that, uh, when it comes to the vote, people will then realize that this is really a take it or leave it proposition. It has taken almost two years to negotiate the whole the whole the whole agreement, and the, neither the EU nor the British government are in a mood to unravel the. the negotiations so we are basically you know it's in or out basically based on what you know about the agreement and the reaction to the agreement that there's very little positive that anyone has said about it and it seems as though every side has decided that it is a terrible agreement does that in itself tell you that it's not a bad agreement because if everybody disagrees with it then that means there must have been some compromise Indeed, and so so it was. It's very much a, a, a uh, an exercise of compromise. Uh, she really cut through the middle. The to the Brexiteers, those in favour of a hard Brexit, uh, hated. Uh, those who want to remain in the EU hated. I mean, they would have hated any agreement. And what they all have in common, they didn't read the agreement. Uh, the agreement runs to 585 pages, and I know of only a very few people who manage not only to read it but to digest it fully. It's a very <coughs> complex agreement with a lot of cross references, like all EU treaties are. Right. And uh, so this is this is you know they are basically you know reflecting their prejudices rather than than making a, an informed judgment on what they are actually you know confronted with. Wolfgang Manshaw, does she need a majority to affect Brexit? I mean, one of the things is there's a set of minorities. I get that, but does she need mm-hmm. to find a majority to get this done? She needs a majority for this deal to be ratified. This is a deal that requires ratification, that means approval by both the UK Parliament and the European Parliament. And if that's ratified, then this deal, this Brexit, in the way it's negotiated, comes into effect. Now, under the rules of the EU and of the treaty that, you know, that is this subject under, if there is no ratification, the UK would still leave. Uh, it would still leave without a deal, and that means a very abrupt deal, um, a sudden a sudden stop to trading uh, possible, possible, because the the trading relationship that that existed will cease to exist. They both sides would have to switch to WTO rules, but they don't have customs to facilities to handle this. The the ports of Dover and Calais uh, cannot handle customs, so much of the UK trade might be affected. So there would be significant short term. Uh, short-term uh, disruption. It will be sorted yeah. out in the long run, but in the short run, it will be very messy. Wolfgang Munchau with us as we uh, transition to Germany here. We can also transition to a data check, PIM. Negative 500 on the Dow, 24,517. S&P down negative 48, 2643. The VIX, 23.03, up 2.93 points. Uh, Wolfgang um, uh, Munchau, does the future of Italy and Italy's government run through Berlin? Uh, I don't think it will. Uh, I think people have made, um, uh, you know, people are overestimating the power of Germany, both to influence the future of the EU and to influence the politics of other member states. 
what the, the simple truth is that the eurozone hasn't worked out for Italy. It has been in the eurozone for almost 20 years. There has been virtually no growth. Um, it's not that you can blame the euro for this. Uh, you can also blame successive Italian governments for this. But to, for, to, to make Italy basically, you know, happy and you know, successful in the eurozone would require policies that, ni- that no Italian governments have implemented over the last 20 years. So people are asking, and I'm asking myself, is this a sustainable proposition? And I, I don't think it is. And the question is, how does this lack of sustainability, the rise in, you know, the, we expect the debt level to rise again, um, how does this lack of sustainability play out? Will it be made sustainable? I will Italy change its policies, or will it eventually leave the euro? Or will it do something in between, in like introducing right. a parallel currency and live with dual currencies for a certain while as a sort of a step towards yeah. the euro exit? These are all possibilities. Wolfgang, we've got to leave it there due to the markets. Wolfgang Munchau with us, uh, founder of FT Deutschland and their editor for years, and of course, writing in the FT from Euro Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.